Good morning, everyone. Pull out your copy of the Word of God and go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be spending um, our morning looking at verses 12 through 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. For the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Let's pray. Abba Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. I pray as we approach your word that we would um, tremble, that we would listen, that we would think about these truths and marvel at them, Lord. I pray that um, you would open our hearts to understand. We know that your revelation is revealed to us through your word. And as we approach this powerful scripture, I ask that you would help us to understand what the meaning is. Amen. The title of my message this morning, originally it was The Living Word, and then Pastor David gave me a great idea. Caution, extremely sharp and dangerous. So, I love that title, so that's what the title is now. (laughs) Um, One of Jonathan Edwards' students once said of him that when Edwards was explaining his text, He was merely setting up his cannons. And it was in the application that he fired them. That's what I plan to do this morning. I'm going to set up three cannons from Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. And then I'm going to blast them. Now the first cannon I'm going to set up is a little bit heavy, so it's going to take me a little longer to uh, get it uh, into place. But the first thing I want to point out of this verse is that we've just parachuted down into a theologically jam-packed portion of the book of Hebrews. Not only by the thought that chapter 4 conveys, but, uh, the, uh, entire, but the entire book. We're actually at the bookend of the first major division of the book of Hebrews. That spans from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. And because context is so vital in arriving at the attendant meaning of the author, we need to take a closer look at this context in order to understand what this passage is actually saying. When uh, the paratroopers landed in the French countryside on D-Day, One of the first things that they were trained to do was figure out where they were. They had spent hours during boot camp training about the map, about the the territories and memorizing uh, where they would be. And so no matter what happened to them, where they landed, they would always know where they were on the map. And so it is with Bible study. If you have the big picture in your mind, it... uh, it, it, it will help you figure out where you are and where the, what the text means. And it will keep you from getting lost and, 
you know, to use our illustration, keep you from getting shot by Germans. So, in order to understand this text, what this text is actually saying, we need to see what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is actually saying. So, a key question I want to ask you, and this is a key question that is going to help us really get a hold of what uh, 12, verses 12 through 13 is saying, is what does the author mean by the Word of God? What does he mean? Post-Reformation history almost universally assumes that this is a reference to the Bible, the Word of God, to Scripture. The Word of God that's copied and printed in your hands this morning. And most of you all probably have this passage memorized. I know when I was your age, I memorized this passage. I love the image of swords. I love the image of, of sharp things. It's attractive, especially for a young man. We like, you know, running around, lobbying things with sticks and um, I remember as a kid, we had this Excalibur in my garage, and I would just go around, pull it out when my parents were looking, and my siblings would go around and we'll fight each other with it. Nobody got killed, but <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the, that we're attracted to that saying. We want it to be a sword, that the Word of God is a sword, but is that what this text is actually saying? And you may be surprised to tell, for me to tell you that uh, there's actually four different interpretations to what the Word of God means here. And I don't have time really to explain them all, but I'm just going to narrow it down to the two most uh, likely. The first one is the most popular, uh, which is uh, it's the Word of God. It's the written Word of God. Um, And then the second one is the living Word, Christ Jesus. And I'm going to show you which one is best. I'm I'm going to give you three reasons why the Word of God in this text refers to Jesus. I could give you more than that, but I don't have that much time this morning, so I'm just going to stick with three. The first reason. The first reason Christ is better. And yes, pun intended here. The roadmap of Hebrews. I would suggest to you that as we gain a bit more understanding about Hebrews um, and where we are in the book, the best interpretation is going to show itself. It's going to become plain. So let's take a look at the map of the book, and we'll start filling in our minds with the big picture up to this point. Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience. That's the first thing you need to know. It was written to a Jewish audience, just like the book of James we're, we're in. Um, these Jews we're, were undergoing some intense persecution for their faith. And they could be categorized into three groups. They were believing Jews, there were unbelieving apostate Jews, and then there were self-deceived Jews, Jews who were kind of on the fence. And uh, we'll take a deeper look into that later. Uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to this, these groups of believers in order to show them the superiority of Christ and the New Covenant, how the Old Covenant Uh, uh, comes into the new covenant. So Hebrews chapter 1 begins with showing Christ as the one whom God is now speaking. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son. The whole argument is to show that Christ is the superior prophet, uh, the superior priest. He's far superior to angels. He's, he's better than Moses in chapter 3. We see that he's argued as being better than Moses. And then and finally we get to chapter 4 and we see him argue that Christ is better than Joshua. Christ is the better Joshua and he, is, and he brings us to a superior rest. Um, a superior rest. 
for the people of God. In chapter 4, we see the author argue that just as the Israelites, while they were in the wilderness, heard the word of God and listened to the gospel, uh, some of them still hardened their hearts and didn't make it into the promised land. So Hebrews 1 through 4 is about the preeminence of Christ, the superiority of the new covenant. And then in verse 14 of chapter 4, he begins, the author of Hebrews begins a new section about the priesthood of Christ. And so when you look at a book, the book from a holistic perspective, from its entirety, we see that we are actually standing at a bookend of a literary section. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 is a bracket, is what it's called. And it closes off a section, and then it introduces a new section. Which makes us ask the question, if it's a brass bracket, what's on the other end? Well, it's Hebrews 1.1. He has spoken to us through his Son. Doesn't it seem kind of strange that at the end of a passage about Christ being the better Moses, the better Joshua, the better angels, and warning against rejecting the only means we have at entering into this promised rest, that the author of Hebrews would just break out into a brief lecture about the Bible. The Word of God is not a reference to the Bible in this verse. It is a reference to Jesus. I'm going to give you a few other reasons why Christ is the better interpretation. Number two, the second reason Christ is better, the immediate context of Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Not only does the larger context of the book of Hebrews demand this interpretation, but the immediate context does as well. We see in chapter 4, 1 through 10, the author of Hebrews is exegeting a specific psalm. He's exegeting uh, Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And he's comparing the Israelites who angered the Lord in the wilderness and did not enter into the rest, uh, a.k.a. the promised land, with the Jews who have tasted Jesus and reject him in the church. Now, this rest in this passage does refer to salvation for this church, but in its its greatest fulfillment and its greatest expression, this rest refers to the rest that God will give the nation of Israel when the Messiah returns. Israel will be saved from sin, will be saved from all her enemies, and will have safety and rest in the promised land. So, yes, Psalm 95 can be accurately used in this case to show that Jesus is the one who will bring the rest that is prophesied in the Old Testament. Testament. Jesus is the better Joshua. That's what chapter 4 verses 1 through 10 is all about. That is why the author of Hebrews warns, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, I want to talk a little bit about rest. What does that mean here? What is he referring to? There's a lot of theologians out there who will say uh, that this rest just refers to salvation. And when I mean just refers to salvation, I'm not saying that when you're saved from your sins and you go to heaven, that that's, you know, I'm not belittling that. It's not just salvation. What I'm trying to say is that when it refers to salvation, it's referring to a a larger package. It's not just this idea of being redeemed and being saved from sin. 
It's also the idea of being completely redeemed. It's this full rest. And the best way I can illustrate this is giving you an example of the Hebrew concept of blessing. The Hebrew concept of blessing. Okay, When the Jew thought of blessing, he thought of two things. The first one was being before God's face, being in God's presence. Um, so th- you just think of uh, in, in Leviticus, the, the uh, high priestly prayer, when they would bless the children of Israel, what would they say? They would say, um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. The concept of blessing there um, had to do with being in the presence of the Lord in a uh, benevolent way in a way where God was gracious and kind, and you were, in, um, for lack of a better word, in right relationship with him. Um, and we just think of that when we think of the garden, the Garden of Eden. Uh, God, they were in God's presence. They were before his face. They walked with God. They talked with God. And the same thing um, uh, can be said with, with Israel. Israel, when they entered the promised land, he, he promised that he would be with them as a nation. They would be in his presence. And then the second term is this concept of rootedness, being rooted in a land. Um, and, for example, just think of Psalm 1. Uh, blessed is the man. And then the psalm goes on to talk about an example of this blessed man. He's like a tree planted, rooted in the, in the earth, planted by the rivers of water. And he bears forth fruit in his season, and his leaves shall also not wither. So that's the two concepts of blessedness and rootedness. It has to do with uh, being in God's presence and then being um, in a land. What does that remind us of? The Garden of Eden, paradise. You see, you have um, God being present with man, and then you see Adam and Eve in the garden. The garden is also said in Ezekiel to be the mountain of God. So this is God's present here on earth. And so the full fulfillment, what I mean by salvation, what I mean by this rest, is that God will restore Israel to the land, and that they will be in Yahweh's presence. And we see this all throughout the the, uh, Pentateuch. We see that in Deuteronomy. Um, What was the major curse that God would bring upon Israel for not keeping his covenant? The curse was that he would remove them from the land, away from his presence in Jerusalem. And so that's the concept it's having here. So what the author of Hebrews is arguing for is that the promised rest is not ripped out of the context in Psalm 95 or in the context of the, uh, the, the Old Testament where the, the sons of Israel didn't enter into the promised land. When God is referring to his rest, he is still referring to being in the land. And I want to just bring this back to you guys. What does that mean for you? Um, well, when in the Abrahamic covenant, and God says all the nations of the earth will be blessed, what is he saying there? And he's making the whole argument of Genesis. What he's saying is that the nations as well will be redeemed fully. You'll bring salvation to all of the nations because they will be blessed. They will live in God's presence and be rooted in the land. So that's what he is meaning here when he's talking about the promised land. So the author of Hebrews... He then turns to a warning. He warns with a contrasting parallel here in the book that if God so judged the Israelites in the wilderness and the ones who failed to enter into God's rest during Joshua's day uh, for, not, for not obeying the Lord, not obeying the word, 
how much more then would be our judgment if we were to neglect so great a salvation, if we were to neglect Christ? Then we arrive at our verse in verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful. We see that that only makes sense if this were a person. We had been comparing Jesus with Joshua in chapter 4. We were comparing him with Moses. We were comparing him with the angels. We were comparing him um, to, 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 these, to, to these people. And so it wouldn't be logical if, if the author just switched from a person to an inanimate object. And then back to a person again in verse 13. So the context of this passage, the immediate context of this passage then, is not to tell us the nature of bibliology. It is intended to show us Christology. It's intended to show us Christ. And we go, then, it is intended to show something about Christ that is vital for the new covenant believer to understand. We go from verse 12 and 13, talking about a warning a judgment to verse 14, referring to Christ as a better priest who sympathizes with us. So Hebrews 4 is just fleshing out of Christ as the Redeemer of Israel, the Judge of Israel, and the Priest of Israel. That's the, that's the context. And then the third reason Christ is better, the author's use of grammar of he, in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. And I know some of you guys are just going to sleep as soon as I use the word grammar. Um, but the third proof I want to give is that the verses themselves point to Christ as the better interpretation. Okay? It points to Christ. The word translated as living in the Greek is, is fronted. That means it was chosen specifically by the author for emphasis. And it's to show personality, to show livelihood to the, to the subject. The word is masculine singular there. If it was referring to an object, my question is, why wouldn't the author just make it a neuter? Didn't give it a masculine form. Then in verse 13, he uses two personal masculine pronouns. And what do these pronouns refer to? They refer to the subject of the sentence. In this case, it refers to the logos, the word of God. So Hebrews 4.12 then is pointing us to Christ. Just like in John 1.1. Points us to the new covenant, the new creation by the logos, the word of God. In the creation was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The gospel of John shows us the new covenant work of Christ. He is the word that brings in the new creation and the new covenant. And in Revelation 19.13, we see exactly the same phrase that we see in our text here. It says, his name is also called the word of God, referring to Jesus, the Logos. Christ is the word. So Hebrews is pointing us to Christ, that he is the one whom God is speaking through, that all the world was created by him. And now he is making a new creation in the church. Hebrews is marching forward, so to speak, with proof that Christ is better than the angels. He is better than the prophets, and he is better than Moses and Joshua. Joshua may have led the Israelites into the promised land and given them temporal rest, but Christ is giving a far superior rest, full and total salvation. Rest from all their works, from all their sufferings and trials. Therefore, the author of Hebrews submits this warning. Be diligent 
to enter that rest. Why? Because of the first canon. The word of God scrutinizes. For the word of God is living. Up to this point, Christ had been compared to men in times past. And frankly, these were dead men. People like Moses was dead. Joshua was dead. Yet Christ was living. Christ was raised. Christ is the word of God referred to in this text. He's the living word, the living God, the one whom all of life springs from. Christ is the one who allows your every breath to leave your lungs and then gives you permission to inhale again. Christ is the one who knitted you in your mother's womb and is intimately acquainted with every cell in your body. All of life comes from the living word of God. First John 1, 2 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. As Hebrews 1, 3 puts it, The Logos is the one who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of life is from his hand. Therefore, you owe him every bit of your time, every bit of your efforts, every bit of your love and affection. It all comes from him. Because of his supreme excellency as the living word of God. Christ is a person. He is life. He's not an inanimate object or a force to be controlled. And as such, he has thoughts and a will. And as the sole source of life, he has communicated his thoughts and his will to you. And today, if you want to know him, if you want to know those thoughts and those will and that will, you turn to the Bible, the written word of God that he has given to us and preserved so that we may know the Logos. So in a roundabout way, yeah, you could, you, know, you could use this verse to say that is the activity of the Bible. But these are terms that emphasize personhood. So it is much better to understand this as a person, as a Jesus. The Word of God is living, and it's also active, we read in our text. He is saying God, Christ is working, contrasting to the rest that the Jews are told to enter. They are told to rest and cease from their works. And why are they to cease from their works? Because they are to rest in the activity, the work of the Word of God. The word translated as active is the Greek word for work, or our English word for energy. They find rest in the work of Christ. Christ is constantly working here. He's constantly building his church. And that's what we see here. Be, be diligent to enter into rest because Christ is alive and he is working. We read again in our text that the word is sharper than any double-edged sword. You might be thinking here, ha, I got him. A person can't be a double-edged sword, can it? Well, the same person, that's a good point, but the same person is also called a door. He's called a gate. He's called bread. And it's called a vine. So if those things can apply to Christ without it being illogical, then a sword can apply to him as well. Christ is the sword, or better translated here, the knife, which cuts and pierces the heart. I'll show you why it's a better translation for a knife later. But this makes the reality 
of preaching for me a little bit mind-bending. Christ here is the one cutting. It is Christ who is the one convicting. As His Word is preached and His Gospel proclaimed, He is building His church. He is there wrestling the sinner, conquering the sinner, examining the heart. Think about that when you sit in service this morning. As the Word is proclaimed, Christ is right there. Christ is at work. Christ is alive. He is searching the crevices of your heart, examining the innermost part of your soul. The Logos was the one who said he would build his church. And that's the difference between a person who can sit in a pew Sunday after Sunday and respond vibrantly to the word of God. Someone who can hear the word and repent and trust in Jesus and, and, and believe and then, and then have sanctification and show fruit throughout their whole entire life. And then the person who sits right next to them Sunday after Sunday and is hard of heart and listens to the same truths and yet refuses to repent, refuses to acknowledge their need and deceives himself into believing that they are regenerate and they reject Christ in their heart. The difference is the Christ, the Logos, cut one and not the other. The text continues, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit. The emphasis here on the two-edged sword is to show the breadth and ability that Christ has in his scrutiny. The word of God tears apart and examines every nook and cranny of your heart. He scrutinizes all the thoughts that you have, all the motives behind those thoughts. You cannot know your own heart, the Bible says. It's, it's deceitful and, and wicked above all things. And the only person who does is the person who is in this room right now listening to it. The Logos. Constantly continually listening to your heart. He knows what is in man's heart. Like John 2, 25 says, He had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What the author of Hebrews is clearly warning about here is the person who makes a false profession of faith, who hasn't entered into the rest, who's, who's sitting on the fence. There are those in the church who assume that there are believers and are self-deceived or even knowingly pretending. And Christ is the one who separates them. The faithful from the frauds, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. When the verse says the division of soul and spirit here, it is not saying that people have both a soul and a spirit. Scripture uses those terms interchangeably. At least that's my view. I mean, it is showing how far the Word of God cuts here. How deep the incision is. It goes through the entire human. Christ knows you fully. And he makes an incision to the uttermost. Now the scripture are the means of grace that Christ uses to scrutinize the human heart. The scriptures are called the mind of Christ. Therefore we know what God's will is based on the scripture and it is through the word of God accurately preached and applied that Christ uses as the means to cut and to scrutinize. And that's why I would say this interpretation actually bolsters the understanding of how the word of God sanctifies. Christ uses his word. When a knife is dull, 
it becomes useless and dangerous. When the word of God is ripped out of its context, its meaning blurred, its authority altered, and sense skewed, it becomes useless and dangerous. Imagine the damage done by a brain surgeon using a dull knife. Those who misunderstand and and misapply the word of God do so to the peril of the church and the peril of their own souls. There is, or there has been, incalculable damage done to the church because of a misapplied text of Scripture. And that's the secret sauce, I would say, to jumpstart a cult or any well-intentioned, misguided movement. But this is the emphasis I want you all to understand here. That this is a person that this text is referring to. This is a person that's accomplishing these things. As the Word of God is accurately preached and proclaimed, Christ is performing surgery on you. Verse 12 continues, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word translated judge is here is where we get the word criticize. Christ acts as a critic over your every thought and action, every secret idol, every hidden sin, every pet pleasure. Christ does what David asks Yahweh to do in Psalm 139, 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Christ searches the soul. He tries the thoughts and knows the heart. And now the second canon, the word of God sees. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him. That's a chilling thought. The author of Hebrews As warning those who aren't being diligent to enter the rest, those who are disobedient to the message of the gospel within the church, he warns that Christ sees everything. The author of Hebrews sends out a warning to those who would neglect to take their own souls seriously. There is nowhere you can hide from Christ. This verse is meant to show the Jew who thinks that they can just get by in the church by only going halfway, by holding on to the old covenant and, and uh, dipping into the new. Hebrews 6 tells us these self-professed believers were enlightened. They knew about Christ and the gospel. They tasted the heavenly gift, it says. They were involved in the church and in ministry. They tasted the Holy Spirit and they tasted Christ. The sense of the word tasted here is is like the the picture of tasting juice. You you try it. You get the fullness of the flavor. And then you spit it out. The pastor may not see you spit it out. Your parents may not see you spit it out. But Christ certainly does. This is what the Jews were doing. They were enjoying all the benefits of the church. They were just they were just tasting it. All the benefits that Christ had to offer and they still refused them. They spit Christ out. The text affirms that Christ is omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. But this text also gives us the sense that God not only knows everything, but he looks at you judicially in the sense that Christ sees your sins in particular, that Christ sees your guilt. Christ 
peels back all that deceptiveness of your heart and peers straight through the core of every person. There is no one who can hide from Christ. You may be able to fool your parents. You may be able to play the part for your friends. You may be able to play... Um, you may be a good, reformed boy or girl. You may uh, be a five-point Calvinist who says that they, they love Jesus. But, but you may have had the whole church fooled, but there's one person who you haven't fooled. You may be really good at wearing a mask, but Christ really sees right through that mask. And He is the Word of God. He sees through your mask. He peers Uh, gazes right through the facade. Packing your face with the makeup of self-deception won't hide the corpse that's on the other side. Christ sees it. The sin you hide from your parents, the glances of pornography you think no one will know about, the lies you tell others and think you've gotten away with, all of it will come compounding back to you. You live, so to speak, in a glass house with all your sins on display 24-7. Every sin you've ever hidden, every thought you indulge in, He sees. You may tell yourself no one will ever know, and it, or it isn't hurting anyone. But all of your sins are collected and written down by Christ to be proclaimed on the rooftops. Christ will air out your dirty laundry. Christ will drag out every skeleton in your closet. And yet see his mercy and his patience here. In the sight of all that, and all the sins that you might be thinking right now, the reason why you don't fall through the floor and drop right into hell is because of his patience, his mercy. Is it a wonder He has not consumed you already like He has consumed the Israelites in the wilderness. There is nothing hidden from His eyes. Your every motive is laid bare before Him. The motives of your heart, from the moment you were born to the thoughts you're entertaining now, you are swishing this word in your mouth as I speak to you right now. And you may be enjoying this. You may even be thinking about the beautiful lyrics we just sang in our hymn this morning. But may I ask you, when you walk out that door, do you spit these truths out of your mouth? Or do you let them cut and hew into your soul? Whatever you do with Christ... After you leave church this morning, rest assured, Christ will see it. Christ issues you a similar warning, a more petrifying warning. Christ says to those in the church of Laodicea who stood between two opinions, just like the ones in our text, just like you may be doing right now, these were Christians who, like those we see in Hebrews, pretended to be Christ, while all along they were false believers, Sunday after Sunday, spitting Christ out of their mouth. Christ gives this Warning to all who do this. Revelation 3.16 I will spit you out of my mouth. But I want to point out something further. The word translated here and covered or opened in the NASB had two connotations in the Greek language. It was used as a wrestling term to describe grabbing someone by the throat. Or in a judicial sense, which is what I believe it is. It has here. 
during a criminal charges, a knife was placed on the jugular of the criminal so they would force him to look up at the judge while his crimes were listed off to him. An important part of the book of Hebrews is the fact that this church was being tried as criminals for their faith and because the intense persecution that they were enduring. And so, so they would have that picture in their mind. They were trying to avoid doing that by being tried as a criminal, as a Christian. And we see the author of Hebrews drawing that same picture of what they were so terrified of happening to them. And he warns them that there is a far more terrifying judge and there is a sharper knife that will be put on your throat and a far more terrifying judge that will stand before you if you are not diligent to enter that rest. If they refuse to listen to the word of God and disobey like their fathers in the wilderness, then they will have that two-edged knife placed on their throats and exposed before the Lagos, the judge of the earth. The word of God scrutinizes, the word of God sees, and the third canon, the word of God saves. You might be thinking, hold on, the word of God saves. Isn't this passage like a warning? Isn't this about judgment? And I will get to that. But the last phrase in verse 13 conveys one of the most terrifying verses in Scripture, in my opinion, to whom we have an account to give. The author wants to emphasize who we are giving this account to. The verse ends with logos, with the same word it began with, the word of God in the Greek. Now, why in the world would he do that? Why would he put logos at the end of that passage there? It's a literary device called bracketing. We mentioned it earlier on a large scale, right, from Hebrews 1 through 4. But the author does it again in these two verses because he wants to point our attention back to the Logos, back to Christ. That is who he is emphasizing. The plain sense of this phrase is that man will give an account to everything, but he will give an account of everything before Christ. Christ is the judge. And now I want to jump back to the knife picture in this text for a moment. Yes, he uses this as a picture of the judgment, right? He's holding a knife to your throat. But there is something else it is meant to convey. The two-edged knife here has been argued and debated for centuries. Augustine, uh, Augustine uh, said that it was the Old and New Testament. But I believe it means it has two purposes. One is to pierce and cut through the joints and the marrow, literally. The flesh is not being figurative here, which is precisely what Christ will do with his word in Revelation 19 when he returns to judge the earth. Let me show you. Turn to Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him, which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword." So that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule him with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. The sword or knife is what the Lord uses in judgment over the wicked. But there is another side to this knife. 
it slices through the soul and the spirit. The soul and the spirit. The purpose is not only to judge, but is also meant to have a very important role in the new covenant. Remember, Hebrews at its core is explaining how the old covenant is superseded by the new and better covenant. The new covenant in Christ. Chapter 4 is about how Christ is the better Joshua. And what did Joshua do to the people of Israel before he brought them into the rest, before he brought them into the promised land? What did he do? Joshua 5 records that Joshua had to circumcise Israel. And verse 2 of chapter 5 in Joshua has the exact same word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for knife, as is used in Hebrews 4.12. What am I saying? Jesus is better than Joshua because Jesus circumcises the heart. Hebrews 4.12 is about how the living word brings you into the new covenant. In order to fully grasp what Hebrews is communicating about Christ here, I I actually uh, want to take you back to a text in, in the book of Deuteronomy. There is an old promise that was given to the old covenant saints. So turn back to Deuteronomy Chapter 30, verse 3. Chapter 30, verse 3. Then your God will return you from captivity. Oh, hold on, hold on. I think I'm in the wrong text here. Nope, I'm good. Then Yahweh your God will return you from captivity and return his compassion on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If those of you who are banished at the ends of the sky from there Yahweh your God will gather you and from there he will take you back. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And Yahweh your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and all those who hate you, who persecute you. And you shall return and listen to the voice of Yahweh and you shall do all his commandments which I am commanding you today. Deuteronomy promises that one day God will bring Israel back into his rest and circumcise the hearts of Israel. And Hebrews four twelve through 13 is the New Testament's answer. It shows that Christ is the one who accomplishes this. Jesus is the one circumcising the heart. Look back on verse 8, for example. Let me for a second. Doesn't that verse remind you of something? And you shall return and listen to the voice of Yahweh. It sounds similar to Hebrews, to me. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 4. Let's look at verse 7. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. It says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 3.15 Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. 
Hebrews 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Listen to the Lagos of God is what Hebrews is saying. Listen to His voice. Listen to Christ. Dear friends, the point of the passage is this. You must be born again. And Christ is the one who must do it. That heart of yours must be circumcised by Christ. The Word of God and the Word of God alone is who saves. The heart surgery that must be performed on your heart in order to live must be done by Christ. So let Him take that knife to your heart. George Whitfield preached up and down the American colonies during the Great Awakening. And, and uh, he would preach over and over, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. And one woman came up to him after a sermon and asked him, why do you keep telling us we must be born again? And in classic Whitfield fashion, he turned to the woman and he said, because, dear women, you must be born again. I second that to every single one of you. Dear friends, you must be born again. Christ is watching, even looking over your shoulder, breathing down your neck. And He will either circumcise your heart and rise before your Father as a priest on your behalf, or he will rise in judgment with that two-edged knife to your throat before his father as a judge. For the Lagos of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged knife and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight But all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we have an account to give. So heed the warning of Hebrews. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Abba Father, circumcise our hearts. Abba Father, lead us in Your truth. We know that the revelation of God is only in the meaning. So we pray that you would help us to understand that meaning. I pray, Lord, that as you are in this room this morning, that our words would be acceptable in your sight, that the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And as we approach your, you, your presence this morning together as a body, that we would prepare our hearts before you in fear and in reverence and in love for the Lagos for Christ. May all we do be to the worship and glory of your name. Amen.